This is a CBC Podcast. It's that time of year when we gather with friends and family to binge on food, drink, and our favorite holiday movies. Mine being the Lord of the Rings trilogy director's cut extended edition. Balrog merrily on high. It's also time to indulge in other festive traditions, like building expansive miniature Christmas villages, which is what Richard Kemick does every year. My Christmas village, bustling with 18 buildings, more than 60 people, and countless accessories, is probably the most impressive thing I'll do with my life. And I'm okay with that. I'm Macy Rowe. This is The Doc Project. Today, two stories about small things with big lives. Coming up, a sourdough starter that came to Canada over 100 years ago with the Klondike Gold Rush, and the Yukoner who still bakes with it today. But first, here's Richard and his Christmas village. I can't remember not wanting a miniature Christmas village. It's like how I can't remember when I first realized I have bad posture. Some things you never have to learn about yourself, but rather just have to accept. I moved out of my parents' house at 17, but my heart has never left. Not out of some romantic notion of remembering my roots, but because the idea of renting an apartment with enough room to store my Christmas village borders on lunacy. So now I am back in Calgary, hauling an unending line of boxes out from my parents' basement and into their dining room. My mother has already resigned herself to hosting next week's dinner party for 12 around the kitchen counter. Once all the boxes have emerged from their summer hibernation, I begin. My wife, Latia, and I live in Vancouver. From our apartment, it is a 45-minute bus ride to Christmas Traditions, the nearest pop-up holiday shop. As I ride the bus, I mentally scroll through the Rolodex of things Latia and I can cut in order to bank even more of our paycheck. Here, of course, I use the word our in its most liberal sense, since Latia is the only one who receives a salary. I like to think of our one-bedroom, 396-square-foot basement apartment as a museum exhibit on the lengths my generation has to go in order to stay debt-free. I've rescued all of our plates from alleyways, our cutlery comes from the spillover sections of Salvation Army drop boxes, and I try not to make eye contact with our dog, Maisie, while I sneak dried rice into her kibble. My wife doesn't realize that I've been selling articles of her clothing for the past three years— We've been living together for only two. Where'd that striped top go, she asked once. I feigned ignorance and then inconspicuously checked our Kijiji account to make sure I deleted the ad. I got a whole $23 for it. By the time I get to my bus stop, I've settled on cutting out grapefruit, coffee cream, and Halloween candy. We can also disconnect the landline. I'll use Latia's cell phone to make my fortnightly call home to Calgary, if we're being robbed while Latia's at work, I won't be able to call 911, but then we don't have anything to steal. At the strip mall, the Christmas store is near a Mongolian grill and a now-defunct Magic Cuts. I arrive 20 minutes before it opens, which gives me time to pace the windows and vow to not spend more than $20. Plus tax, of course. 
I've often wondered how my parents really feel about my village. The ceramic sprawl that's been growing with the force of manifest destiny and that now occupies the entire dining room table. I think my mother likes the village, not only because the woman is insufferably supportive of everything I do, but also because I'm fairly confident she takes credit for it when I'm not around. Oh, this, she tells her friends, gliding her hand over the houses despite my strict no-touching policy. This is just a little something I've been working on over the years. I find it difficult to believe that the man who implored me to reuse duct tape and to not throw out asparagus elastics can look at my village and think anything other than, doesn't he still owe me 4000 for the car? Still, he cannot be blind to the positives. Unlike my brother, who misspent his youth, I frugally saved mine. While Tress was out burning tire treads in the Presbyterian parking lot, I was at home polishing my miniature birdbath. While he was out having unprotected sex with his on-again, off-again girlfriend, I was crazy gluing wreaths onto micro lampposts. And the very night he ran a red and T-boned a minivan, I was in the dining room dusting my cityscape with fake snow. My village was also the impetus for the only time my father accompanied me Boxing Day shopping. How else could he ensure I not spend more than the minimum on things with, as he put it, absolutely no resale value? When the sliding doors at Canadian Tire opened, we quickly became separated in the churning crowd. I wound up blocked in by shoppers on the far side of the Christmas clear-out section, completely opposite the village display. The two tallest people in the store, my father and I were able to make eye contact as he stood right where I wanted to be. Over the heads of shoppers, I hollered, get the chocolatier, but my father is completely deaf in one ear and 75% deaf in the other, and confusion darkened his face. In response, I scrambled up onto the side of a shelf and cupped my free hand around my mouth. Get the chocolatier! I've stopped telling people about my village. Not because I'm ashamed of it. All I have to show for my quarter century on the planet are two worthless arts degrees, my job as a self-employed dog walker, and a book of poetry destined to sell fewer than 12 copies. My Christmas village, bustling with 18 buildings, more than 60 people, and countless accessories, is probably the most impressive thing I'll do with my life. And I'm okay with that. What cash-strapped young man can look himself in the mirror and proclaim, Today, I am finally going to buy that $22 miniature hedge with the two raccoons poking out. How do I explain to my mother-in-law when she asks how is the writing going that I wrote only 120 words today while her daughter was teaching grade 6 French because I'd spent the afternoon cruising an internet thread about mini trees? Why, at 2.30 a.m., when Latia stumbles out of bed to the bathroom, do I find myself slamming my laptop closed, leading her to assume I had been watching porn rather than a speculative video on whether master creator Cynthia Shalev would release a synagogue that shines and shimmers with LED lights. I should admit that mine is not the largest village in the world. Not even close. Like most of my boyhood dreams, the internet has destroyed that illusion. 
89-year-old Milt Hildebrandt from Mendota Heights, Minnesota, is famous for a superstate that slinks through fully two rooms of his bungalow. It is an 1,100-piece collection, many times larger than my own. I once took solace in the belief that, at least in Canada, I was a big fish in a small polyresin duck pond. But in March 2015, a major Christmas Village brand posted a photo on its Facebook page about a deceptively modest 10-piece set. The buildings are spaced out, the streets peppered with people. There is a pastry store and a jeweler. There is a portrait painter on the corner and a wooden fence that encircles a merry-go-round. But what caught my eye was the moon, the same one as mine, its treasonous face glowing with pride. Usually, I would have met the photo with pity, even outright derision. But the caption beneath the photo sent shivers down my spine. It explained that the builder of the village was a Canadian teenager. When I was 14, my set only had seven pieces, one being my hockey team with 19 arms. This kid had just a handful of buildings last year, and you can tell by the way he talks that he's got big city plans. If his village progresses at the rate I expect, this kid will surely overtake me by his 25th birthday. I needed to know, who is this prodigy? And, thanks to his shockingly relaxed Facebook security settings, I was able to find out. He is indeed a teenager, and owing to a post he made about his report card, I know he is an excellent student. I know that he's into cake decorating in a big way. I know he likes bike riding. I know his older sister is a total babe and his father rocks sunglasses and formal portraiture. And also, because of a sickeningly sweet photo of the family in their front yard, I know that he lives nearby. I think back to my teenage self and all the money I wasted on comic books and guinea pig food and trying to date girls who were obviously never going to go out with a boy who revered the key differences between ceramic and porcelain. My young rival's village has perfect aesthetic balance. Mine has villagers who can't even keep their arms attached to their bodies. He is coming for me, and his part-time job is only hurrying things along. My wasted time my wasted life. If I had the courage to reach out to him, what would I say? I would say that for the rest of his life, people will tell him a miniature Christmas village is a childish thing. But I would also tell him that the people who say this have no appreciation for the finer things, for the small flourishes of beauty, and that when you get right down to it, they know nothing about the fragility of the human heart. I would also tell him that they are 100% correct. My brother, my parents, and Latia are all drinking eggnog at the kitchen counter, Maisie curled up at their feet. I am alone in the dining room. The stereo switches CDs and Carol of the Bells comes on, building to its crescendo. My pillars of boxes are empty, My hand is still hovering the plug's prongs over the socket. In the bay window, I catch my reflection, hunched and scowling and shrouded in darkness. 
but the plug enters the socket and suddenly I am bathed in light as power surges through my fingers and into my streets, the banks of lampposts like an airstrip guiding me home. The frozen eyes of my villagers are bright with desire. Their houses are consumed by radiance. My theater, my hotel, my millinery, all of it shines with a light so bright it is pure color, an apocalyptic fire. And above it all is my moon, now shrill with operatic pain. Here I am, surrounded by my city and its inhabitants, feeling like a god. And I bless them. Every one. That was Playing God, an excerpt of a story written and performed by Richard Kemick. His essay originally ran in The Walrus magazine and aired in 2016. Since then, the story took on a life of its own. People became obsessed with Richard's obsession with his Christmas village. It went Canada viral. To read about what happened after that story first came out and to see photos of Richard's village, head to our website. We're at cbc.ca slash docproject. Also, Richard's new book, I Am Herod, is out now. Ione Christensen lives in Whitehorse, in a house that she and her husband, Art, built themselves, which is a very Yukon thing to do. And sitting in a jar in her fridge is this little piece of Yukon history, a sourdough starter that's been with her family since the gold rush. And that was just the beginning of its adventure. Producer Megan Dooling went to visit Ione and her sourdough starter in 2017. And we have an update on this story afterwards. There you are. So I'll just take out a couple of scoops here because this has been working all night. And it's kind of sticky and runny and and it smells. You can smell it. Yeah. I'm sitting on a stool in the kitchen at Ione and Art Christensen's house in Whitehorse on a dreary morning in late October. Ione? Yes? Have you met my friend Megan? Yes, I have. You pour me have Yes, I will. You're going to have some sourdough, eh? Yeah, we're going to have some sourdough. Art is 90. He's hard of hearing and seeing, but I didn't know that until Ione told me. He makes his way to the living room to listen to his audiobooks. JJ, the dog, curls in his bed on the corner. Ione's eyes are bright. Her cheeks are rosy. She's wearing lipstick and an apron over a nice blouse. She's 84 years old. Ione has all the ingredients to make waffles lined up on the counter, like in a cooking show. And, of course, the sourdough starter. You have in this little jar here that I have, it says right on it, um, this is um, 100-year-old sourdough. Please do not throw out. The label says 100-year-old sourdough starter, but actually the label's a bit old. Today, it's more like 120 years. Uh, you keep your sourdough in there, and this is what we're going to it's do. It's still good after 120 years because it's alive. It's, it's your pet. It's a living thing. You see this thing? <laughs> it is a living thing, and it does change, you know. We're going to put some starter back in this, this little little container of mine so that next time I want sourdough, I'll have it. A yeast culture that, if you treat it right, lives on and on. You can take a bit out, 
use it for your baking, then feed the rest of the starter to keep it going. So you always have to have that little saved at the before you do anything at all. So the starter lives to feed generation after generation. So, you know, it's been going on in our family for a long time. I can always remember whenever we visited my grandmother and when I stayed with her for a year when I was going to grade one in, in Dawson City, it was always sitting just on the counter, just behind the, at the end of the stove. And uh, at that time, as I say, they always used it every day because it didn't last. I mean, you, you have to have refrigeration in order to, to keep it going. Okay, so pretty cool, right? This sourdough starter has been around way longer than I own. Her mother used it, her grandmother, and her great-grandparents before that. But there's more to this starter. It's different than most that you may find in the fridge of some bakers in the South. Because this sourdough starter has risk and adventure in its blood. Now this sourdough came, oh, came with my great-grandfather and his three sons when they came in. And they left New Brunswick in, in 1897 with, you know, the gold rush and all the, all the hoopla that was going on at that time about the gold rush. Ione's best guess is that it was in Dyee, Alaska, that her great-grandfather picked up the sourdough that now sits on her counter. Dyee was a port on the Pacific, the start of the long trail to the Klondike gold fields. The shortest route there was the steepest, over the Chilkoot Pass. Men and some women, forging a new life in the north, carrying on their backs enough supplies to last a year, and tucked away among the wool blankets, gold pans and pickaxes, balls of sourdough starter, stored in socks. Uh, they would make up uh, hotcakes. They would they would put it in their in their, in their sleeping bags or their, their their blankets and that to keep it warm at night, so it worked. And you'd have to be careful you didn't roll over because you wouldn't want a bed, sleeping bag full of sourdough. In the Yukon, a sourdough is old time slang that's still used for someone who spends a full year in the territory. Well, they, they sourdough they, because everybody that came over the Chilkoot Pass had sourdough. That's how the name stuck. Uh, sourdough does stick to everything. And it, um, they just call them sourdoughs. I mean, sourdough is, is Yukon. <laughs> Ione uses it for breads, hot cakes. Waffles are her and Art's favorites. They eat them every Sunday. So we have to start putting some stuff into it. And we have to put in some oil. And here's our oil, and we'll pour in. Yeah. Then you have your eggs. Uh, have to s- separate the eggs. Um, I the original sourdough is a staple in Ione's family. But the starter has changed over the years. Sourdough picks up flavors from spores wherever it goes. It's evolved and incorporated parts of the Christiansen's lives into its sticky, gooey self. Sourdough is very independent-minded. You could put it um, into your bread and it would rise, but it might rise in an hour, or it might take three or four hours to rise, just depending. There's no real rhyme or reason to it. 
independent-minded. As I sit here with Iona, she makes waffles and tells stories of her big life changes and expansions. I can't help but think. Maybe she's incorporated some of the spirit of the sourdough into her life, too. I had a trap line when I was six years old. You know, I, because I was the only child around, I carried a gun when I was seven years old. And my dad made sure I knew how to run, use it. And, you know, and I, was, I, was, I was a tomboy, always. We'll put in... Ion's father was with the Northwest Mounted Police. He was posted in Fort Selkirk along the Yukon River. It was an important fur trading post. It's where Ion was raised during an era when steamships puffed up and down the river. And so all the furs would come in from the Pelly, and um, some of them came in from the Stewart area. And, um, you know, they, they supplied everybody that was out there either trapping or there's a lot of prospectors in the area. So it was a busy, a busy place. But I got sent out. I got sent to private school. That's a whole other different story, yeah. I didn't take sourdough waffles there. <laughs> After high school, she went on to college near San Francisco. She met Art, built the house we're in today, had two boys... All the while, she sat on various political boards. Eventually, someone asked her if she'd be justice of the peace. And so I said, sure, that sounds interesting. So I did and uh, studied up and got all the books and stuff and legislation. And, and I was justice of peace. And then they said, well, well, would you be the juvenile court judge for the Yukon? And so I said, well, I'm not a judge, but yeah, okay, let's give it a try. I was a judge, a federally appointed judge, yeah. Um, yeah, without any lawyer law degrees or anything else. Someone asked her if she'd run for mayor. I said, oh, I've never been in politics. Well, no, he said, give it a try. It doesn't hurt. So, okay, sure. So I did. I ran, and there were seven men ran. Some of them had council experience. And I won by quite a good margin. And... Um, so suddenly, here I was mayor. You know, it's, it's fun running in any, at whatever level. That's the fun part of politics. Once you're successful, then you suddenly think, oh my God, what have I done? You know, this whole mantle falls on you and the weight of the world is upon your shoulders. Ione ran for a second term and won again. Then, towards the end of her term, someone asked her to be commissioner. You know, I said, I said, all right, well, you know, what about the commissioner's job? He said, lots of people don't get asked to do these sort of things. You should give it a try. If you don't like it, you know, you can always go. The Yukon was governed out of Ottawa at the time. The commissioner was the contact person between the territory and the federal government. At the time, the Yukon had its first election along party lines. A premier was elected for the first time. The Yukon was moving toward devolving from Ottawa. Roles were unclear, and Ione resigned. We'll see. Yeah, here it's bubbling over. Uh, but that's okay. Just a little bit of... The sourdough starter continued to feed the family, as Ione's career kept expanding. Art, Art's a great cook, and he, uh, you know, he had to be with me way off. And uh, he'd always make the sourdough if I wasn't making it. So, yeah, it was always well used. 
After resigning as commissioner, the Federal Liberal Party came calling. They wanted Ione to run as member of parliament for the Yukon. So, again, Art said, give it a try. <laughs> Art is always great at doing that. <laughs> he gets me into more trouble. Ione lost to the Conservative Party by 101 votes. And then somebody, somebody wanted me to go to Ottawa again <laughs> as a senator. And this time I was ready. This time I was ready. And I loved the Senate. I really did. Being appointed senator didn't stop Ione from making sourdoughs. And I thought, oh, it'd be very nice to be able to have the Yukon sourdoughs down there and I could vet, invite some of my senator friends up and you know, take it to the Senate and we could have it there. Uh, but I guess uh, the sourdough um, picks up spores from wherever it is. And it was an older building that I lived in, and it um, it picked up spores from the older building, and it tasted awful. It was, no. But um, the Yukon sourdough didn't like Ottawa. <laughs> Don't worry. Art had some of the original starter back in the Yukon. And eventually it was Art who pulled Ione home. But then when Art was losing his sight and that, he needed help at home, so... He'd been looking after all my chores for so many years. It was time I came home and gave him a hand. No, I've been very, very lucky, and just, it's all circumstance. I mean, I, I never planned on being a politician. In fact, you know, if you'd asked me that when I was in college or anything, I'd be crazy. <laughs> Who would want to do a job like that? As the sourdough starter continues to thrive, Ione is slowing down. Life is taking her somewhere she can't control. Ione won't hike the Chilkoot Pass, where her sourdough came from, ever again. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting hike. I've done it 21 times, and I just love it. I have a walker now. I don't think my walker will go over some of those big talus boulders. In fact, just two months ago was the first time I suddenly realized that I cannot walk without aids like canes or my walker and that was a pretty <laughs> it's a shock <laughs> to sit you know and to suddenly realize that you can't when you've done it all your life and there's so many things you still want to do and you can't do them you know it's life is funny life is funny it sort of leads you it really does Which one do you want first? Do you want your maple syrup first, or do you want your cranberries and whipped cream? Hmm. Uh, maybe cranberries. Okay. Yeah. You like whipped cream? I, I love it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We'll do that. Ione sits down with me and serves herself up a hot waffle with two rounds of butter and a good splash of maple syrup. Yeah. Yeah, just put a dribble of some down the center. She watches me make mine. Cranberry sauce over the top. It looks so pretty. Ione gave both of her sons some of the sourdough. One of them uses it every Sunday to make waffles, like he had growing up. When she dies, Ione doesn't know what will happen to hers. It's not in her will, she never thought of that. She says whoever cleans out her fridge will get the jar with the 100-year-old sourdough label on top. And 
I never wa never washed this container because if you wash it, you're going to lose a lot of the good old stuff. So you always have to have that little saved at the before you do anything at all. I own Christensen. Her story was produced by Megan Dooling and edited by Julia Poggle. When that piece first aired in 2017, someone from the Belgian Sourdough Library, yes, this is a real thing, heard it and made the trip to Whitehorse to collect a sample of Ion's sourdough. Ion made him waffles, of course. They analyzed her sourdough's DNA to try to find the origin of the starter and are keeping the sample in their library. Ion and Art are still living in Yukon, and Ion is still making her waffles. On our website, you can see photos of Ion Christiansen, her ancient sourdough, and its almost as ancient label, complete with the warning, DO NOT THROW OUT, in all caps. That's at cbc.ca slash docproject. The Doc Project is produced by Allison Cook, Julia Poggle, and me. Our digital producer is Althea Manassen, this week with Sarah Clayton. Our senior producer is Jennifer Warren. I'm AC Rowe, wishing you, as always, a happy non-denominational holiday festive time. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.